The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. As most of you know who have been following this program, listening to it uh, each week, we are talking about the health care of the United States, domestic, foreign policy, social policy. We originally had programs around health care reform, but we are so far away from that that we really need to turn and face the issues uh, of our daily lives, the destruction of what's going on with our economy, with our foreign policy, the disaster of this Biden administration. And so, in focusing on our domestic policy issues and politics itself, last week I highlighted Governor Ron DeSantis and some of his background and the work that he's doing. Today, I want to focus on another politician that I think is a real rising star in the Republican Party and in the conservative movement. And that's Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Uh, He is a minority. He's unusual in many ways in that he is a minority who is a conservative Republican. And his story, I think, is a fascinating one that ought to be heard by more people in his community of the black uh, caucus members of Congress and, and the black population in general to understand why he's conservative, what his background is, and what his policies are, because I think he would be a terrific candidate for president or vice president, and I think he has a great political future, because he can really change the dynamic of offering hope and opportunity to the minority community and to those impoverished, whether they're black or white. He's got a great story, and I want to ask him about his background first before we get into his his politics that I think will be very impressive on what he's been doing in Congress while he's been there as a senator. Uh, but his background is pretty impressive. He grew up in a lot of poverty that I want you to hear about. I want this audience to know and understand how the American dream is still alive for people who, in many cases, feel that there is no hope, there's no opportunity for them, and all they got to do is live in generational poverty uh, one one after another one. So, uh, Senator Scott, give us that background a little bit. Tell us your story of how you grew up and how things have changed in your life to allow you to become a United States senator from the very poor beginnings and the struggles that you had as a youth. I'm a kid who grew up in poverty abject poverty in many ways. There is much worse poverty in America and certainly around the world than I grew up in. I'm talking about the poverty where when you come home and you hit the light switch, there's no light. I'm talking about the kind of poverty that when you had a phone attached to the wall and you picked it up, there's no sound. There are people who lived in worse poverty than I, but that is poverty from my perspective. And I lived in that poverty, and one of the challenging situations of poverty that manifests is hopelessness. And I was that hopeless kid in America, mired in poverty, in a single-parent household. Well, Senator Scott, that does sound like a pretty desperate situation of poverty in a um, single-parent family 
um, mired in uh, poverty where you can't pay your bills, but you got a hardworking mother, a mother of faith. Tell us about what were your expectations on how you could get out of this kind of a situation, if at all. Tell us the mentality of children that across the country there are millions that are in that situation. How did you think about how you might, if you even thought about it, how could you get out of such a situation? Under the impression that the only way I can escape poverty is through athletics or entertainment. I was hopeless. And from seven years old to 14 years old, I drifted. And all drifting leads in the wrong direction. I failed out of high school. Embarrassed my mom who was working 16 hours a day because I felt like there was no hope in this country for a little black boy like me. 14 years old. Senator Scott, you paint a very vivid picture of what so many people in this country are living through. So many young children, age 7 to 14, whatever that range is, that are starting to look at the world around them, see other people with a better lifestyle, uh, more things that they, uh, better dresses, better clothes, better shirts, better shoes, better education, and they're wondering the same things that you wondered about back at that age. So you talked about failing school, and so many kids these days are dropping out of school. What was it about school? How did, how in the world did somebody like you, who obviously is very intelligent, very smart, how did you fail high school as a freshman? Failed Spanish, English, World Geography, and Civics. Civics, as we all know, is as close as it gets to failing politics. I will say that this body as a whole today is failing civics. We're failing in politics. But, as the Lord would have it, I had an amazing mother who believed that it was her responsibility to pray me out of the hard situations I found myself. And then I had the good fortune of meeting a mentor after I got through summer school. They redirected me. I pulled myself together with the help of a powerful family, a praying grandmother, and a whole lot of faith. Senator Scott, what I'm hearing you say is that you had the support of family, faith, and an outside mentor, somebody who could give you hope, somebody who could show you the way, somebody who took you under their wing to give you some guidance and to bring you back to the person that you were inside, somebody who believed maybe more in you than you believed in yourself. And your mother was the one that really was able to, the parent, able to bring you along and push you and tell you that there are better things ahead for you, that you can do what you want to do, but you've got to apply yourself. And you found a way to do that. So what was the outcome of that? What about your studies? What was the outcome of your formal education, if you will, to get back on track? And I caught up with my class. I graduated on time, earned a small football scholarship, went to college, earned a degree in political science. And what I'm hearing you say is that the, your inner self, the people around you were able to bring that out to get you 
the education, and that's really the key for most people in this country, is a good education to be able to break through that level of poverty, that hopelessness, that education is the thing that worked for you, and it can work uh, with your example for so many millions of kids in this country that might find themselves in the position that you found themselves. But now, on the politics side, most in the minority community, the black community, are Democrats. So what were your activities relative to politics at an early age? What kind of groups were you a part of? And, you know, maybe we get into how you transitioned from uh, whatever you were, presumably a Democrat, to being a conservative Republican. But what was your activities? What groups did you look up to at the time when you were making this transition and graduating from college with a political science degree? Along the way, as a youngster, I joined the NAACP, joined the Urban League, joined many organizations in the community because I knew that a part of my responsibility was to be socially engaged in making a difference no matter how small that difference could be. The one organization I didn't even think about joining was the Republican Party. Why would I ever think about joining the Republican Party? Because growing up, every African American, every black person I knew of was wed to the Democrat Party. Because it's better to have a seat in the room than be outside. That was the heritage I grew up in. Senator Scott, I think you're stating the obvious that many of us have been very confused about. There's a tremendous loyalty of the black community. Ninety plus percent of blacks vote for Democrats, but the Democrats never really seem to do anything of significance, of real importance to the to the uh, black community, except try to throw more money at them, which means that they keep them in poverty. Some have called it the uh, the new uh, modern-day plantation that the Democrats keep uh, the minority community on by giving them enough money to keep them happy, enough programs keep them happy, but not really allowing them to advance out of that poverty through education or job training or uh, real economic advancement uh, to achieve the American dream. What is your perspective and take on that, having lived it? Because the Democrats have a monopoly on the black vote. And no matter the return on their loyalty, and and I am telling you, the most loyal part of the Democrat construct are black communities. And no matter the loyalty of the people, the return they get will always continue to go down because in monopolies, you start devaluing your customer. So, Senator, you have proposed a number of reform issues, particularly in um, uh, police reform, in judicial reform, in uh, criminal justice reform, but they have been blocked by the Democratic Party uh, again, following the idea, I guess, that what you just said is that they're not interested in helping the black community in any real sense um, because they've, they're they going to get the votes anyway. And so why do that? And you're proposing the bill as a conservative Republican 
because that's the community you grew up in. You know the kind of help that the bills you're talking about would actually benefit people. So how do you deal with that situation? What is your recognition of the problems that we face in this country when the Democrats will not allow you to pass bills that would help the minority community? They cannot allow this party to be seen as a party that reaches out to all communities in this nation. And unfortunately, without the kind of objectivity in the media that is necessary to share the message of what's actually happening, no one will ever know. Because if if you don't read it in the paper, it must not have happened. If you don't see it on TV, on MSNBC or CNN, it must not be true. Senator, I find your story extremely uh, inspirational and your political experience in dealing with the Democrats on bills that really could help the minority community being blocked because you are a member of the Republican Party. If you were a Democrat, they probably would have supported it outright and you'd be able to get stuff passed. So the political shenanigans that goes on in Washington, your insight to that is fascinating. Let's take a commercial break, and I want to come back, continue this conversation and this understanding of Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina and the story he has as being a conservative minority member of the Republican Party. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today, we are going in-depth with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He is a powerful voice in the Republican Party, strong conservative. His unique background is that he grew up in poverty. He is a black American who has overcome all the difficulties of a single parent, uh, poor environment, poor education, uh, a, a student, a young child with no hope, uh, failed out of high school as a sophomore, and then was miraculously rebirthed through his mother's faith, through his mother's initiative, through his mother's pushing through a mentor that helped him understand things about himself that he didn't understand. He's clearly a very smart, very intelligent man who has risen to be a senator in the United States Senate from the state of South Carolina. Very impressive background, a very impressive speaker, a very impressive conservative with the right ideas to help the black community in a real sense. He feels that the Democratic Party has ignored the minority community because they get 90% of the votes no matter what. 
and he's made some very intelligent observations about why he's a Republican and he's not a Democrat is typically expected of him being a minority. He's supposed to be a Democrat, but he realizes that the Democratic Party has failed that community, takes advantages of them only once them around during election and doesn't really help the minority community. He has put forward a number of policies and reforms, especially around judicial reform, uh, criminal reform that would help the black community to be safer, to be more secure, to have better educational opportunities, better job opportunities. But he's been stymied by a Democratic Party that will not accept a conservative minority Republican to actually put forward proposals that might help that community because it would be giving credit to the Republican Party and the conservative movement. So I want to go back to Senator Scott and have him explain about what's going on with the politics and how the Republican Party, and the reason he's in the Republican Party is because they're actually putting forth programs and proposals that will help the community. But Senator Scott, is the Republican Party really reaching out to the minority community? Are they trying to get the minority votes? And it may be a long struggle to get more than 10%, but people like yourself being spokespeople for the black community, examples that people can look up and say there is has to be a different way. Or as Donald Trump said, why not try me and let me see what I can do to help support? You can't do any worse than what you've been doing under Democrats, so give me a chance to prove myself. So what what's your feeling about the Republican Party's actual initiatives to help the Democratic Party and to reach out to them as voters uh, to support conservative ideas? Let me just say this. I think we are willing to compete for every vote, everywhere, all the time. That might not be true in every corridor of the nation, but it's true in most corridors of the nation. And this party has reinforced that truth, not by the words coming out of my mouth, but by the actual legislation signed into law. Senator, I know that the media doesn't give you the credit for the work that you did, substantial work to help the minority community in a number of areas to improve the economics of those areas, to improve the education of those areas, to improve the uh, judicial uh, reform uh, bills, that you work closely with uh, President Trump at the time. Tell us about those kinds of activities that when the Republicans were in charge, there were substantial actual passage of legislation by the Republican Party that should have gained the attention and the support of the black community, recognizing that the Republican Party, through Donald Trump, who many in the Democratic Party and the minority community were mischaracterized as a racist and, you know, disliked black community, but he did policies that actually helped them. Tell us about those kinds of activities. Give us a little bit of an insight as to what happened during the Trump years uh, to actually support the black and the minority communities. 2017, we passed tax re- reform. I included in the opportunity zones, $75 billion, real money, to the most distressed communities in this nation. How did that happen? 
Well, me and President Trump had a serious disagreement on his comments after Charlottesville. He being a person that I was not looking forward to having a conversation with, invited me to the Oval Office. I sat down, Ben, and I said, what do you want to talk about? The president said, tell me about your perspective on racial history. I was stunned, because if you know President Trump, like I know President Trump, his love language is not words of encouragement. (laughs) It just ain't. I know it ain't ain't a word, but it's not. But he listened. And at the end of our conversation, he simply said, tell me how to help those I've offended. I didn't know what to say, so I pulled out my back pocket and got opportunity zones. So, Senator, what you're saying is Donald Trump, President of the United States then, listened to you, wanted to know what he could do to help the people that he had offended. He clearly didn't understand that he had offended. I mean, that lack of sensitivity uh, is maybe one of his greatest downfalls and why he's not president today. But at the time you were there, he was trying to say, let me help the people I have offended so maybe he could make up for the issue because what he said, uh, many people say, was distorted uh, because he wasn't talking about there are good people on both sides. He wasn't talking about the white supremacists that were there. It was they were talking about another issue entirely that was happening at the same time. But regardless, he said something that offended people, and he was trying to make up for it. Tell us a little bit more, because this is fascinating insight into what happens in the Oval Office and how you're able to connect with then-President Donald Trump to actually accomplish something that helped the minority community in what you say you pulled out uh, uh, as the opportunity zone for him to support. Did he support it, and how actively did he encourage the support for that piece of legislation. He, he listened, he leaned in, and he said, tell me how to help the folks I have offended. I said, well, let's, let's, let's work on opportunity zones together. He said, yes. I was like, what? He said, yes. He was concerned enough about the communities he had literally just offended. He was concerned enough to go to work on their behalf, and that's why we have opportunity zones. Senator Scott, this is kind of... Um you know, the inside baseball stuff, which is fascinating for us uh, political junkies. But um, now that you got the opportunity zones, uh, President Trump was interested in in uh, supporting that. He jumped in and said yes, that he would support it. What else has the Republican Party done that probably most people don't recognize to really help uh, the black community? What were some of the action steps, rather than just words and promises to try to win people over at election time. Election's over at this point. He's president. Uh, what else were you able to talk to him about doing? And what was his response to help the black community? I went back to the president and said, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done around the HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. He said yes. He said yes. We said yes. And let me just say this. When we started saying yes, we control the White House, We control the Senate, and we control the House. So it wasn't because some Democrat came over and said, you got it. In order to get our votes, you got to do this. That's not what happened. He said yes because the Republican Party said yes. We stood together with all three levers of government under our, our control. We got opportunity zones done. We started the process of 
reinvesting in historically black colleges and universities. And the head of the United Negro College Fund said at my last fly-in that this is a record level of funding ever. His words, not mine. I'm not sure whatever it is. Maybe that's longer than I've been alive. Literally more money for HBCUs ever brought to you by the Republican Party. Senator, let me stop there and jump in because I'm hearing some very interesting and important points that you're making. First of all, um, I wanted to profile you today, and you're showing the audience here describing how you were able to go in as a black senator and make an impact on actually helping the black community, number one. Number two, that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, as demonized as he is by the Democrats and as demonized he is by so many in the media as being racist, was voluntarily looking to help support your initiatives without any question, without any uh, pushback. He's saying, if this is what you want, I will support it. I think that's so important. And number three, that what you're describing is a total change under the Trump administration of a mentality of helping the black community, whether they know about it or not. You know, there's an old saying, it's it's amazing what you can get done when you don't care who gets credit for it. So the Trump administration never got credit. They were just demonized as racist by the Democrats. But what you're saying, instead of just talking words to win over votes in November, Trump and yourself were out there actually doing something that would help the community in a very positive, action-oriented way. Senator Scott, give us an example of what else you were able to do as a conservative moving towards helping the black community in this partnership you were developing with Trump. But really, it's a new partnership of the Republican Party doing what's right instead of just talking the talk. They're actually walking the walk, whether anybody knows that they're walking or not. So give us another example. So we went to stem cell research, which uh, stem cell research for sickle cell anemia, which is a 100%, basically speaking, 99.95% African-American disease. He said, yes. Lamar Alexander, the head of the chairman of our help committee, we were fighting over funding for HBCUs. We made it. Permanent, permanent funding for the HBCUs led by a Republican chairman of the Education Committee. President Trump signs it. We have delivered historic funding and permanent funding for HBCUs. Senator Tim Scott, you must be very proud of what you're able to accomplish when Republicans had full control. And imagine what you can do to Republicans regain full control in 2022 and 2024. I suppose the frustration is that even with all that good work, since the media doesn't help support and recognize the ideas and the programs the Republicans put in, and certainly not what Trump put in, uh, they, they consider to call him a racist, that Trump still only got, you know, 10, 12 percent of the Democratic uh, minority vote. Uh, but kudos to you for doing the right thing at the right time and getting it done anyway because there is karma in this world, and whatever you've done right, it will come back to benefit you and benefit the Republican Party in the long run. Let's take another co quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Since the 1960s, 
J.C. Taylor has been America's premier specialty insurance provider for classic cars, antique autos, modified, and custom vehicles. Our customers have trusted us to protect their prized possessions for more than six decades. For more information, or to receive a quote, contact our expert team today by calling 888-ANTIQUE or by visiting our website at jctaylor.com slash awr. That's 888-268-4783. Or visit jctaylor.com slash awr. Drive through time with peace of mind. J.C. Taylor. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. Welcome back to America's Web Radio for the third segment of this week's program. Today, we have a fascinating guest that we are discussing all the issues around conservatism, the black community, and the representative of this is Representative Tim Scott of South Carolina. Now, he's got a terrific list of projects he's been working on, conservative-oriented solutions for our economy, for our, our pocketbooks, for our investments. He is a free market guy, and he has particularly for the Republican Party taken on the mantle of a number of tasks, as you might expect, to show the black community that conservative solutions can actually work on their behalf. And we've talked about how he worked with President Trump uh, to get certain things done, whether it's uh, support for the historically black colleges, whether it's sickle cell anemia research or a whole host of other things, opportunity zones that he was championing on. And President Trump, I know, has been demonized as racist and insensitive and sending out mean tweets and all those sorts of things, which is maybe the reason why he was defeated for re-election if it wasn't other problems and issues that changed the election during the pandemic. But the reality is that he did a lot and real policy reform and passing of legislation led by Tim Scott and got no credit for it. Uh, the election was um, still, you know, 10 percent Democrats and I mean, Republicans and 90 percent for Democrats. But it doesn't matter. Both Senator Tim Scott and President Trump really did the right things for the people and the population. You know, Trump, as demonized as he has been, he really was in many ways, the blue-collar billionaire. In other words, he looked after and thought about the average American. And that includes the black community, the underserved, the black and brown community that may be at the bottom quintile of our economic uh, system, those who need a hand up. And Tim Scott, I'm trying to profile this week because he is a perfect example of someone who was brought up in destitute poverty, as he described earlier this hour, 
and found a way out of that poverty through education, family, faith, and a mentor that really cared about him. And so I want to go back uh, to uh, Senator Scott and have him explain that during the Trump years, things were so much better on what Trump was doing for the black community. You know, we see today with inflation so high, with all the problems of the Biden administration clamping down on oil and gas uh, development and the uh, and the, the reserves that we would have, the causing inflation, exacerbating inflation, all the policies and restrictions and additional regulations that are driving up costs that are hurting the poor community more than anybody else. But what was the situation just less than two years ago? And Senator Scott, why don't you describe again for our audience who may have a very short memory, but I think people do recall how good it was just a, a few short uh, months ago, year and a half, two years ago. Tell us what the the dynamics of the economics were for the minority community and what they were experiencing as opposed to what's happening today. Unemployment not only at a record low, but we had labor force participation rates increasing. Let me say that differently. Not only did we get more jobs for black folks and brown folks, the number of folks in the community started having an increase in the number of folks working. This is called basic conservative politics. It works. Seven million new jobs. Two-thirds went to African-Americans, Hispanics, and women. In a full economy, all boats started rising. Senator, this discussion today is not sort of the, the highlight how great and wonderful Trump might have been, and he clearly was in many ways, was to highlight your activity as a black conservative within the Republican Party and what you're able to do. Uh, first, you've described the, um, the minority community and the things you're able to do specifically for them. But your activities and interests have been much broader than that. You're not going to pigeonhole yourself into just the black community issues. Uh, you're a senator for all citizens of South Carolina. And during covid what was going on there that you were helping to promote in the budget and the allocation and the funding and that whole uh, COVID savior package, if you will, uh, to help small businesses and communities that otherwise might have gone bankrupt and our businesses would have been uh, dramatically hurt? So tell me about your work uh, in that COVID package uh, during that period of time. And what did we do? We, we not only approved... $2.3 trillion, and then another 500 or so billion dollars, and $3.450 billion that would be multiplied in the commercial facilities by probably seven or eight, another $3 trillion, $6 trillion relief package. But what did we do inside that package? We targeted small businesses to save small businesses, and by the way, we added a billion dollars for historically black colleges and universities. Senator, you are clearly a threat to the democratic liberal philosophy that blacks ought to always vote for the Democratic Party, that Republicans are anti-black, that they're not helping the black community in any way, shape, and form. You've shown that. So you are a big threat to the traditional narrative of what's going on, because I know you've also done criminal justice reform. So Tell me about that aspect of the congressional work that you've been 
uh, focusing on. Let me tell you what the biggest threat is. The biggest threat is that this Republican Party keeps showing up and delivering. Literally, I've got pages of accomplishments to talk about. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just here to tell you that if we're going to be serious about criminal justice reform, and we passed it with the House, the Senate, and the White House in the hands of Republicans. We passed criminal justice reform to make up for the Democrat bill, the 1994 crime bill, that locked up disproportionately African-American men. The Republican Party passed criminal justice reform with all three levers in our hands. Senator, I know you've got to be frustrated in the current environment. You got so much done when Republicans were in control of the House and the Senate and the presidency, and that's certainly not the case today. Democrats have control of that, and you're not able to get the legislative ideas you went through because you're Republican, and you're a minority Republican, and they don't want to show the people out there who vote 90% for them that Republican conservative ideas implemented for the black community can actually benefit them. And the media certainly doesn't want to have that as a narrative that they that they show and promote. So I know you got to be frustrated. Tell us about the issue of schooling, which is so important in your recovery, if you will, from being a troubled youth and what you would like to see done there and the frustration that you must feel by not being able to get that accomplished in Washington because of the Democrats um, holding you back on issues that would be so important to education in the minority community. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. Because it's not a competition for the best ideas. It's not a competition for how to improve the poorest performing schools in America and the public education system that is consistently in black and brown communities, that your zip code determines the outcome of your life because you're not going to have a good education because we won't, we won't touch teachers' unions. We won't touch education in the way that it needs to be touched. Governor Scott did before he was a senator. It's one of the reasons I went down there and campaigned for him because he was serious about helping poor kids get up and move on. Senator, what's it going to take to wake up our country, uh, the black community in particular, to say they're not getting their return on investment, their investment being the votes in the Democratic Party. When one party controls, as it does today, the Democratic Party controls the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and nothing is getting done like it did when the Republicans controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Wouldn't it be better if we had both parties sort of pulling in the same way, trying to help the public rather than sort of playing politics, thinking that they've got an edge when maybe they really don't? And ultimately, people are going to see through all this. So what is your thinking about what it's going to take to make some change in this country in terms of people's attitude or maybe even the media telling the true story about what's going on? I don't know what it's going to take to wake up an entire nation about the importance of a duopoly and not a monopoly. Because look at your results. 
Senator, I know you've been working on some of these issues for a long time. What do you think can be done right now if Congress was to actually put something in place? And how do you point to the areas that have dominant Democratic control, other major cities around the country, and what's your opinion about they're not meeting the needs of the minority community? I'm telling you, I had this conversation five years ago. I'm having this conversation right now. We could do something right now. You know, here's the truth. In Detroit, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, all these cities could have banned chokeholds themselves. They could have increased the police reporting themselves. They could have more data information themselves. They could have de-escalation training themselves. They could have duty to intervene themselves. Minneapolis as well. All these communities have been run by Democrats for decades. Decades. What is the ROI for the poorest people in this nation? And I don't blame them. I blame an elite political class with billions of dollars to do whatever they want to do and look at the results for the poorest, most vulnerable people in our nation. I'm willing to compete for their vote. Well, Senator, I think you're doing more than wanting to compete for their votes. You're actually doing the work that's necessary, whether or not you get their votes or not, but by competing for their votes in your own thoughts of turning this Republican Party into a blue-collar party, the working-class party. It's a different perception of the party that is now real. And I know the old perceptions of the country club Republicans is going to linger for a while. It's hard to change uh, existing myths, and the Democrats will still play up on that, although the party identity really, in the practical terms, has reversed. The Democrats are now the party of big donors and big tech and Wall Street, Republicans are the party of the middle class and middle America and focusing on how do we improve the life of minorities and give people that American dream, that upward mobility that uh, we all know should be there. So I commend you on that. Let's take another quick break. And I want to come back and wrap this hour up with more around this amazing politician, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to the Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega dollar collector cars you can't afford or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. 
To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of America's Web Radio. Today we are talking and interviewing uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, Senator from South Carolina, conservative, Republican, a minority, uh, representing uh, everybody in his state, but a black conservative uh, seems to be very unusual at these times, although we're seeing more and more in our television, our news, and our, our journalists on um, conservative TV at least, more black uh, commentators and reporters uh, showing the conservative way. And certainly Senator Tim Scott is a leader of that movement showing the black community that conservative Republican solutions can and have worked. And we've been interviewing him about his policy initiatives over the last number of years and how he worked with Republican uh, House and Senate and presidency to actually improve the lives of the minority community, as well as small businesses and everybody uh, in the country, uh, of course, his own state of South Carolina. So I want to take a little bit of a twist here in this final segment. And while we've been looking at a presentation uh, that Senator Scott made on the Senate floor, and that has been the basis of our, our previous three segments, today I want to ask him a little bit about um, his faith so we can understand the man, uh, Senator Tim Scott. Tell me about some of your worldview, if you will, um, Senator Scott, and uh, some of the biblical uh, perspectives that you find most useful in your own life. I think to myself, I love the truth of Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. In unbelievable and yet unexplainable ways, the truth of that scripture often plays out through the lives of seemingly ordinary men and women who respond to the inner call to lead. Defeat cannot stop them. Being misunderstood won't slow them. Being reviled won't deter them. There is a mission bigger than themselves that is growing within that requires immense grit to achieve what most think is impossible. Senator Scott, I know you're big on the need for public service and having leaders in place that actually can make a difference. And I know one of the leaders that has been a hero for you was Ronald Reagan. And it's hard to imagine it's been uh, 40, more than 40 years since he was elected. And he did so much in terms of things like policies that, changed not only this country, but changed internationally, bringing down the Berlin Wall and so many other things that he showed strong leadership of. Can you compare and contrast a little bit of the Ronald Reagan kind of leadership to what we have in the White House today? Since witnessing the first 14 months of Biden's administration, I believe our country needs leadership now. I shudder to ask... If it were not for President Reagan's leadership, would that the Berlin Wall 
still be dividing East and West Germany? Would it have taken decades longer to come down? A time for choosing. There is no more fitting theme for this time in American history. I think that's a great example of leadership, how it has actually changed the world. And if we had not had a Ronald Reagan, would that actually have occurred or would it have taken more decades and more uh, human misery and suffering uh, if we had not had that kind of a leadership? How do you view today's progressive left in trying to change the dynamics of this country and how we view ourselves and how we uh, view leadership and what should be done in this country uh, to get back to where we are the greatest country in the world. As the progressive left attempts to change the very DNA of our country and what it means to be an American, we need to answer a fundamental question Ronald Reagan posed to us in his time for choosing speech. He asked us this question. Do we believe in our capacity for self-government, or do we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives better than we can plan them for ourselves? Our nation has had a very challenging and difficult two years. We are emerging from a pandemic that cost people their lives, cost others their health, and devastated our economy and further divided our country. In the aftermath, the world emerging is chaotic and full of peril, both at home and abroad. There are threats all around us seeking to divide us, and in some cases, seeking to destroy what this nation stands for. Senator Scott, that's eloquently and profoundly, boldly stated about the value of leadership and what we need to do today. What do you see this Biden administration having done on the international stage where you just described how Ronald Reagan had a big impact on people worldwide? So it's not just the United States, but leadership, the United States leadership as the leader of the free world actually made a big difference under the proper kind of conservative leadership and philosophy of the world that Ronald Reagan brought. How do you see that contrasting with Joe Biden? Under the Biden administration, our weaknesses on the world stage has emboldened enemies like Vladimir Putin to launch an evil genocide against Ukraine. Women and children are being victimized, even targeted. The Reagan doctrine of peace through strength is needed now just like it was during the Cold War. At home, supply chains remain disrupted, the cost of basic necessities are skyrocketing, and our labor force participation rate is not keeping up. People flourish when they have a plan, a purpose, and a paycheck. So, Senator, with this philosophy that you have of the importance of national leadership, national conservative leadership, Uh, relying on the people and not just on some elite people in Washington, D.C. How do you think that the Biden administration's lack of a good foreign policy of projecting uh, peace through strength and, and, uh, you know, trust but verify kind of a thing, which seems to have gone by the wayside entirely with the Russians, how do you see that having impacted um, our culture and our activities here in the United States? The domestic policy. It's no coincidence 
that the frustration, the anger, the disillusionment we are experiencing is manifesting itself in rising crime, apathy, and suicide rates, especially in our kids. Americans are losing one of the most inspirational truths we have, which is hope. Hope that things can and will get better. Hope that education and hard work can equal prosperity. Hope that we remain a city on a hill. A shining example of what can be when free people decide to join hands in self-governance. This is reality, and it is the natural consequence of what failed leadership feels like to the average worker on the average wage in our country. What you're outlining, Senator, is failed policy on both the foreign and domestic issue, and they're interrelated. Our lack of projecting strength and competence in the foreign policy area, and certainly the withdrawal from Afghanistan was probably the initial obvious um, incompetent uh, move that most people could see on their TVs, but it also affects what's happening at home, that we know that there's an incompetence in uh, policy and in application and in trying to really help uh, the people when government basically saying, well, I, I, it's somebody else's fault and I don't know how to fix it and you're just going to have to live with it and it'll work its way out. Just have some some false hope uh, and uh, that you're not really uh, experiencing anything. It's just the economy is doing great and everything's going well. Where where are we then as a country? Where are we as a people trying to get out of this morass and trying to move ahead with our lives in a more productive, more uh, exciting way of providing for our families and our communities. America stands at a crossroads with the potential for a great resetting, a renewal, even a rebirth. When we get to choose how we will meet the potential of today and the promise of tomorrow, will we step forward with strength and perseverance? Will we redouble our conviction in the power of ideas or will we shirk back and allow a great nation to be consumed and degraded? Are we still one nation under God? Are we truly indivisible? Is there liberty and justice for all or Will we allow our differences to further divide us, to further weaken our resolve? Will we, as our critics have warned, extinguish the light of liberty from within? These are difficult questions for us to consider. Senator, as we sort of get to the end of this week's presentation, the profile of yourself and all that you've done in this country and all that you've done for the working class and the uh, underclass people in this country, uh, you've done tremendous work. Can you give us a little bit of hope, if you will, from your experiences or your worldview as to where this country may be going and how we can resolve some of the issues? You've talked about some solutions here but give us your perspective on what you see as our future. But when I take a look at the arc of justice and liberty within America's history, I have every reason to hold on to hope. With each and every challenge, our nation's track record is one of strength and unity. 
Whether it be the Civil War, the Great Depression, the fight against communism, or overcoming racial division, whatever is thrown our way, America has come through time and time again stronger and more united than ever before. The reason for that is because our nation was founded on truth, and truth never changes. And that's what the conservative movement is all about. Conservatism doesn't flirt with what's easy and alluring. It doesn't tell people what they want to hear, but what they ought to hear, because it is the truth. Our party is a party of Abraham Lincoln, one of strength, endurance, resiliency. It's the party of Ronald Reagan, one of hope, opportunity, and optimism. We have struggled at times to present this message of conservatism with clarity and contrast. We have struggled at times to be messengers for what we know is true and timeless. But if it is indeed the time for choosing, and it is, we have no choice but to lead the world with bravery, resolve, and strength. Wow, what a powerful message of hope and opportunity and the facts of what have been done and how active we could be and what this country could look like if we had leadership uh, more like the philosophy of Senator Tim Scott. Well, I hope our audience has been paying attention and listening to this remarkable politician who I think his future is very bright, and I hope he seeks higher office and more involvement in trying to get things done for our country. Please join us again next week when we will highlight some other political or policy issues for this country. I hope you've learned a lot about this particular man, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Please join us again next week. Thank you for being here. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.